I don't know if Louis' show got canceled before he got canceled or how that worked, but uh, the thing about comedians, they always have a way to humorously point out the absurdities of life, and we'll come back to that very thing. Um, I show movie clips like that because they help us sort of understand things that we're going to be talking about from the scriptures that we may not otherwise understand. Uh, it's the same reason why Jesus used parables. And this summer, we're going to be looking at uh, several of the parables Jesus told. In the month of June and July this summer, we'll be looking at a lot of the parables that Jesus told. And he, he told this, the parables to illustrate something or to explain something. See, what happens is we all look at life through our own perspectives, right? We have, a, we have our own individual perspective. I, I see things how I see things. Uh, and it's based on how I grew up. It's based on where I come from. It's based on what I believe. That shapes our perspective and how we view something. And because we have a perspective, we always listen and take things in with a bias. Whether we know we have a bias or whether we don't know we have a bias, we all have a bias in how we listen. And because we have a bias in how we listen or a bias in how we see, we often interpret or understand what's being said or what happens differently than what was intended by the person who said it. I don't know if this happens in your marriage, but I bet it, bet it probably does. You simply say something like, oh, could you get me a napkin? And the person snaps back. What, you thought I didn't wait, uh, know you wanted a napkin? Of course I know you wanted a napkin. And you're like, well, I, I, I wasn't saying it mean. I just had barbecue sauce all over my hands and was really needing a napkin and was wanting to ask if you could help me out here because I'm a little messy. That's all I meant by, what, you think I don't care enough to get you a napkin? Is it fair to say that there was a perspective and a bias there that was not meant? I mean, did you mean, you good-for-nothing, lazy piece of whatever of a wife, could you possibly do something useful for a change and get me a piece of paper, wipe mine? Is that what you meant by it? Or are you simply saying, I'm in crisis here, I need help? Some of you are looking at me like, this is getting way too real, <laughs> too early in the morning. My point is simply this. We have a perspective which gives us a bias, which means we don't always understand what we hear the way that they were meant. And Jesus knew a lot of the stuff that he was saying wouldn't be understood well because we have a hard time understanding what Jesus is saying because Jesus is talking about a world we know nothing about. We, we often say we live in a fallen and broken world. Uh, pause for a moment and just try to imagine what it would be like if Jesus was king. Like if he truly was king of kings, in other words, we often say that the President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. What if Jesus Christ was the most powerful man in the world by everybody's standard? What if every ruler on this earth looked to Jesus to set a standard for right and wrong, for good and evil? What would that world be like? Is it fair to say that we almost can't even understand what the world would be like if he was in control? I mean, if God truly answered the first line of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the first thing we ask? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What would life be like if that actually happened? We have a hard time understanding it. Most of Jesus' teaching, especially where he uses the parables, he's trying to explain to us what it would be like if we truly put him as king of kings and lord of lords. What life would be like if he was ruler over all things. And so Jesus is always talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. If you read through the gospels, you'll see it over and over and over again. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 20. He's going to tell a parable. And he begins off a lot of his parables by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. What does he mean by that? 
what it would be like if I was king of kings and lord of lords over all this earth and recognized for it. One day, of course, that will happen. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's saying that's going to happen someday. So the kingdom of heaven is something that is going to happen at some point in the future. However, to the extent to which you recognize Jesus as king over your life and Lord over your life, to that, to that extent, that kingdom will happen in your life right here, right now. You'll begin to live in his kingdom here and now in the midst of the kingdom of this world. And he's trying to explain that throughout the Gospels. And so he'll come up to something that's hard to understand, like, how do you explain to a fish what it's like to breathe air? You ever thought about that? Like, how do you explain to a fish that they're all wet? They don't understand it. They're, they're so immersed in water, they don't have any picture, any understanding, any comprehension of what life would be like outside of the sea. I think the little mermaid asks that question, right? What's it like up there to walk out there? I don't know any of the words of the song, but you know, some of you all remember that thing, right? She's wondering what life would be like out there. She sees all these things that are dropped in the ocean. has no idea what they're for, right? She's wondering what life would be like out there. So she's trying to understand it. In the same way, Jesus is trying to explain what life would be like if he was truly king. What life ought to be like. What life would be like without a world of sin. See, what we don't realize is that because we live in a sinful world and we are sinners, we see the entire world through our sinful perspective. Another word's way of saying that is we see the entire world through a selfish perspective. And it skews a lot of what Jesus says. So oftentimes you'll be reading in the Bible and you'll assume a selfish perspective on what you're reading. And you go, well, I don't really like what that's saying because that just sounds mean or harsh. And it's because you're assuming God has a mean or harsh bent like everybody else in the world that you've ever seen. So we have a hard time understanding a lot of what Jesus is saying because we don't come from the right perspective to understand it. Does that make sense? So by the way, what I'm going to try to do every single week, at least on the front part of this series, is I'm going to try to give you a little bit of background understanding of what a parable is and the way Jesus taught and the way you understand the Bible, and then I'll get into the parable itself. So that's probably enough of uh, parable background for you this morning. This morning we're going to be looking, oh, I've got to tell you one more thing about parables. Sorry. Mm. Every parable has a specific purpose or a specific meaning. The word parable means to something that comes alongside something, something Jesus just threw out. So Jesus will spit some truth, and then I'll try to explain it through a parable uh, to help you understand, help you see it from a different perspective, because our perspective is often skewed. So every parable has one central thing he's trying to teach. However, there's a lot of truth that's often explained in that parable. In other words, in order for you to understand the big picture of something, there's a lot of supporting truth that you need to understand. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is, is I'll give you an illustration. Uh, we're not going to be talking about this one this morning, but a lot of you all know the parable of the prodigal son. How many of y'all have ever heard of the parable of the prodigal son? How many of y'all have never heard of it? Y'all are probably thinking, I don't want to raise my hand now because everybody else has heard of it, and everybody will know it's my first time in church. Very common story. The reality is the parable of the prodigal son isn't about the prodigal son at all. We call it that because we most identify with the life of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is actually about the older brother, the very last part. Because if you look at the context of the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, the very beginning of the chapter of Luke 15, it says, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to ask questions like, how can this man welcome in sinners and eat with them? They're struggling with the disposition of Jesus to welcome in people like the prodigal son. And so he tells a story to help them understand from a different perspective what their heart is like. The story is about the heart of the older brother. 
which is what the Pharisees and tax collectors represent. However, does that mean that we don't learn anything else in the parable except for the heart of the older brother? No, there's a lot of supporting truth. We learn a lot about the heart of God, the fact that God loves both sons, uh, the fact that, the, that God is out on the porch looking every day and hopes that the son will return, and when the son is a long way off, what does the father do? Runs out to meet him. That's the kind of greeting a sinner gets when they come back to God. We also understand a little bit about free will, that the father says, if you want to leave, leave. I will not force you to stay. You want to go? You want to go off to a foreign country? You can go. Uh, we learn a little bit about repentance, that it says the, the younger brother, the, the prodigal son, it says when he came to his senses, when he finally got to the rock bottom, he was down on the pig slop, it says he came to his senses. He began to see himself as he truly was. He began to see life as it truly was. He began to realize, I'm not living the kind of life I thought I was living. Uh, this is bad. He also sees the father as he truly is. He says, you know, even the lowest person in my father's household is treated better than I'm being treated right now. At the very least, I know my father's a loving person. And so he says, I'm going to go back. As we learn about repentance, I'm going to go back and say, I'm not worthy of even being your son. You, you understand yourself as you truly are. And when he goes back, he doesn't even have a chance to say, I need to earn back my position. What happens? The father teaches about grace. He instantly puts a ring on his finger and a rope around him, and he says, this son of mine is lost and now is found, and I'm just so happy to have him back. We learn all of these different things that are true about our relationship with God, all to set up the heart of the older brother. So does that make sense? There's one purpose. There's one purpose of the parable, but within that purpose, we find a lot of truth. The reason why I explain that is because sometimes people say, well, no, there's only one truth. No, there's a lot of truth, but there's only one purpose for why he gave the parable. That doesn't negate all the other truth in that parable. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm telling you something that you don't care about, but I have to get it. Because sometimes I listen to people criticize a pastor's sermon and go, oh, well, he was teaching. That's not what that parable's about at all. I know it's not what it was about. doesn't mean what Jesus was saying is not true, though. We, we still learn about the heart of the Father. If you teach the parable of the prodigal son, and you teach about the heart of the Father, that's all still true, even though the parable was about the heart of the older brother. So, all that to set up, the story we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, the one I thought we should start off with first, well, maybe we should do it last, I'm not really sure, but then again, what do they say? The last shall be first, the first shall be last, right? I'm glad you're laughing about that, but you're probably going to go, wah, 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 because that's actually a preacher joke to set up the parable I'm going to be talking about, which is the parable found in Matthew chapter 20, which is a parable about fairness. It's a parable about the, about the laborers working in the vineyard. And in chapter 20, uh, Jesus starts off and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like, so there's that phrase. He's trying to explain something that we don't understand because we don't have God as our true king, and so we can't understand what the kingdom of heaven be like, so he's trying to give us a parable about that. Now, does anybody know what, the, what verse comes right before he says the kingdom of heaven is like in chapter 20? And at the end of chapter 19 ends off with the statement where Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then he gives this parable to explain what he means by the first shall be last and the last shall be first. See, now you understand my, 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 my pastoral joke? <laughs> Anyways, all right. But you'll remember it probably now. Um, so he gives this, this story, this, this parable. Uh, and in this story, a parable about laborers working the field, one of the truths about it is he's going to start talking about fairness. Because after all, that statement I just made isn't fair, is it? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Is that fair? Is it fair that the person who shows up late for dinner gets to go first in the buffet line? No. How's it work in your house? Last in, last up. First in, first up, right? That's how it should work, right? You shouldn't get to show up last and then be the first one in line at the buffet, right? Am I right? 
you are like, I don't know. I, that is how it works in our household, but I'm sure you're going to tell me something different. No, just go with me here, right? Yes, yes thank you. Because <laughs> we have an idea in life that life should be fair, right? When was the first time you uttered the words, no fair? How old were you? Maybe you probably can't remember. How about your kids? Six, seven, eight? Definitely by 10. Nothing is fair for a 10-year-old, right? They got to sit in the front seat. They got to go first. How come I didn't get a mango pop, right? Everybody is saying, no fair, no fair, no fair. And here's what's really odd. Now, you're adults. Is life fair? No. You know that. That's been beaten into you. By the time you hit at least 30, that lesson's been drilled into you over and over and over again. But here's the sick, crazy, weird thing. You're rebelling against that. And you're rebelling against it because when your kid says, no fair, your first thought is, oh, oh, I must be a horrible parent because I did something that wasn't fair. All right, um, okay, uh, you'll get to sit in the front seat on the way back. What are you doing? You're giving in to trying to make things fair. And you'll do that, and you'll do that, and you'll do that, and no matter how much you try to do that, what do your kids continue to say? It's not fair. You're not fair. And at some point, you finally go, you're right. I'm not fair. Deal with it. Am I the only one? Or you'll say, life's not fair. Not I'm not fair, because that sounds bad, right? It's not my fault that I'm not being fair. Life just isn't fair. Life isn't fair, right? And you begin to teach that truth. Because what your kids will find out is at first, you're not fair, and so they're mad at you. But then they go to school, and they find out that the other fourth grade class got to go out to recess, and my class didn't get to go out for recess. And that's just not fair. You also begin to realize at some point, Usually in the elementary school years, if not definitely by junior high school, there are nice teachers and there are mean teachers. And your friend has a really nice teacher for English, and you have a really mean teacher for English. And the nice teacher doesn't give as many uh, tests and doesn't give as much homework, and my mean teacher gives more tests, and, or harder tests and more homework. And that's just not fair, right? And if you haven't learned it by school, and you haven't gotten upset at your school about it, Eventually, maybe, hopefully, you'll get a job. And how unfair is that place? There's no such thing as equal pay. Laziness gets rewarded, doesn't it? The guy who doesn't do anything, he seems to get paid the same thing as I am, and what do I get? What reward do I get for working hard? Tell me. More work, right, because I know they can't trust him, and that's not fair. And then I look at my paycheck, and the government takes a chunk out, and that's not fair. Oh, don't even get me started about how unfair government is. Right? And so we're mad at parents for not being fair. We're mad at teachers for not being fair. We're mad at our job and our employers for not being fair. We then are mad at politicians and the government and our country for not being fair. And then all of a sudden we realize, I got sick and I didn't do anything to deserve this, right? I can't give any contributing factor for why this happened. And I look at my body and I think to myself, that's just not fair. And one by one, we begin to realize that, wait a minute, what do all of these things all point to? Who's behind all this unfairness? God himself. How on earth could he create a system in a world so unfair? And so we get really mad and really frustrated at God because life's not fair. Bad things happen to good people, and that's not fair. And so we get really frustrated, really angry about this issue of fairness. And Jesus tells a parable, and he's trying to explain 
this concept of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, but in the midst of explaining that, he gives us some truth about fairness, about how fairness at the end of the day is a perspective. And so with all of that sort of leading into this, I want to read through uh, Matthew chapter 20. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them off into his vineyard. Now, typical workday back in the first century uh, was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You worked a 12-hour workday. I don't care if you were into eight hours, 10 hours, wherever it works. They worked a 12-hour workday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Other thing about this is a denarius was the going rate for skilled labor. Uh, it's what soldiers made per day. It's what skilled laborers made today. So in other words, if you're on a uh, construction site, you'll have skilled laborers, you'll have unskilled laborers. Skilled laborers are like your electricians, your plumbers, those kind of guys. There's unskilled labor. Those are the guys who are just pulling wires, holding the board while somebody else measures and cuts it. You understand what I'm saying? Skilled laborers are typically paid about two to three times or more what an unskilled laborer is paid, right? So if an unskilled laborer is paid 10 bucks an hour, your trades are getting 25 to 30 dollars an hour. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is, I'm going to pay you 30 bucks an hour for unskilled work. What do you think of that? Good, good, yeah, you can play along. Good deal, huh? Do you think that if you were an unskilled laborer hoping to get picked up for work that day, do you think you'd be pretty excited about the fact he's paying you union wage for skilled labor for doing non-union, non-skilled labor? Would you be pretty excited about that? Yeah, unless you're a union boss, right? But you'd be pretty excited about getting that job, right? Now, other thing to keep in mind is um, the closest I've seen this in our own time is when I lived in Birmingham, uh, there was a BP gas station where anywhere probably about 50-plus immigrants would hang out in the mornings. And they'd be hoping that somebody would pick them up for day labor. So, you know, if you needed help, help moving, you'd go to the BP and figure out how many people you needed. And usually the going rate was about 10 bucks an hour. And figure out how many guys you needed, and say, hey, I need some help moving. It'd be about four or five hours, 10 bucks, and you try to communicate as best as you can with a language barrier, and the guys that come, they can work for you. Sometimes if you need help, you know, digging in the yard, whatever, that's what you would do, right? So that's a similar kind of system they would have. Now, if you went there and offered 30 bucks an hour, how many, think, how many guys do you think would be trying to get in your truck? They'd be fighting over it, right? So he goes up there, and he says, um, he, um, he went early in the morning and hired workers who worked in his vineyard, and, they agreed, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them out to the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others still standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Uh, he told them, you also go work in the vineyard, I'll pay you whatever is right. Okay, a little nuance in the story here. Now, at 6 a.m., everybody's trying to get hired on for the day, right? By nine o'clock, what's happened? Anybody who was going to get hired has probably already gotten hired for the day, right? The same kind of thing happened in Birmingham. You'd go, I'd go by there in the morning on my way to work around, you know, around a little before 8. BP would be packed. If I came back by there at lunchtime, there might be four or five guys still sitting there holding out in hope. What's also interesting is I, as I drove towards the BP, you'd see guys walking down the road. What are they doing? They're walking home. They didn't get picked up that day. Here's another thing to keep in mind. There's this other little verse uh, in a little statement in the Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread, right? We're like, okay, yeah. We, we almost say these things without even thinking. This is a culture in which they didn't go to the grocery store on Mondays to stock up for the week, right? They went like a lot of us do. We go every single day because we can't remember what we need. No, they went every single day because they only had enough money to buy food for tomorrow. That was it. So if I work today... And then I had enough money to bring home food for tomorrow. That's, that's how their life went. And if I didn't work today, what'd that mean? 
we didn't have food for tomorrow. Or if we had anything left over, you know, that's what we're going to eat. That's it. So you need to work every day so you can afford food tomorrow. And so these guys were there at 9 o'clock. They didn't get picked up for the day. And so notice he doesn't have to make a contract with them. The first guys, he says, I'll pay you guys 30 bucks an hour to come work for me. And they're like, done. And would you say that was nice, generous, right? What would you, what would you say if somebody was going to pay you three times going wage? Gracious, nice, kind, wonderful, amazing, dumb on your part, but I'll take it anyway, right? So at 9 o'clock, if you didn't get picked up, you're probably going to take anything, right? Is that fair to say? I mean, because hey, something's better than nothing. You know, hey, even if you're only going to give me five bucks an hour, at least I can afford something at the end of the day, right? So he just tells them at 9 o'clock, hey, you go work, um, and I'll pay you whatever is right. I'll, I'll treat you fair. So like, hey, fine by me. I'm not even going to argue or negotiate. Um, he then went again about noon, and then also again at 3 in the afternoon did the same thing. But then about 5 in the afternoon, he went and found others that were still standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Now, workday 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., let's do some math. It's 5 o'clock, and he finds people who still haven't worked. They're still hanging out at the BP. Maybe they were in the bathroom last couple times he came by. Maybe they just came back out to check, or maybe they're looking for a friend. I don't know. So he asks them, what are you guys doing here at 5 o'clock in the afternoon? Um, and they said, well, we're here because, it says back, it says, we're here because no one hired us, they answered. So he says to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, a little side note. I used to teach this passage and think that he needed more help, right? Sometimes you get going in the job and you get the job done in the day, you need more help. Is there any mention in here of how much help he needed? No. What you see here, though, is he's, he's, he's asking them, hey, what are you guys still doing here? Nobody hired you? Will you guys come on and work too? Why is he bringing them in? Out of compassion, right? Out of generosity. He's doing it because he understands the day labor wage issue and that these guys don't eat or these guys don't work, they don't eat. And so out of compassion, he brings people in after 6 a.m., right? Why? Because he wants to. Because he's loving, because he's caring, because that's what he's doing, right? So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. But start with the ones we just hired last, working your way down to the ones we hired first, Okay. And so the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon each came and they received a denarius. Uh, in other words, they received, I should have done the math, it's the second service. Um, what's, 12, what's 25 times 12? Anybody? Is that 300 bucks? 400? 300. All right. Some of us don't even know. All right. 300 bucks. So the people who worked one hour, they got paid 300 bucks. Now, just pause for a minute. If you'd been there for 12 hours and you saw the guy who only worked one hour get 300 bucks, what are you thinking? That's right. We're going to pay. We're going to scissor, right? We're going to pay, right? So what's 300 times 12? 3,600 bucks. Are you kidding me? No way. I don't think he's going to give us 3,600 bucks, but I know he's going to give us more than 300, right? Well, the people who've been there for three hours... He pays them 300 bucks. The people who've been there for six hours, he pays them 300 bucks. The people who've been there since 9 a.m., he pays them 300 bucks. But the people who were started early in the morning, they're thinking to themselves, okay, those people are here because, you know, they showed up late, whatever. Mm -mm. And they walk up, and it says they are expecting. When those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Each one of them also received the same amount. 
And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. He says, listen, those you guys who were hired for the only the last hour of the day, you've made them equal to us. And we were here all day long in the hottest part of the day. They got a point, don't they? See, even when Jesus is trying to teach us something, we still won't give up our bias. Did you see that? All right. I suckered you on that one. All right. But he answered them, I'm not being unfair to you, am I? What did we agree you'd work for today? 300 bucks. At 6 a.m. this morning, you said I was generous. You said, wow, what a deal. You said, I wish it was like this every day. I was a great guy at 6 a.m. And now at the end of the day, I'm, do, I'm fulfilling exactly what I promised to give you. And now all of a sudden, I'm a horrible, good-for-nothing, mean, oppressive, cheat, scoundrel. You're coming to all these names for me. Why? He comes back and he says, take your pay and go. I wanted to give the one who was hired, the same, hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Let's just ask that in isolation. Forget everything else. Do I have the right to do whatever I want with my own money? Yes, I, I do. This is America after all, right? I can do whatever I want with my money. And if I want to go buy 65 inflatable pink flamingos and put them in my pool, I can do that with my own money, right? I don't know why I would, and please don't surprise me and do that for me. I don't want it. Um, he says, I can do whatever I want. He says, are you envious because I am generous? Is that, is that the issue here? At the end of the day, you're mad because I was nice to somebody else. At the beginning of the day, you loved the fact that I was being nice to you. But now in your mind, I'm being nice to somebody else, and that's made you mad because of what? I don't understand it. The little girl in the, in the show. She felt she was mad at her dad because she didn't get a mango pop. Why? She was mad because you were nice to my sister. She got a mango pop, therefore I deserve a mango pop, right? I'm getting mad because you were generous to somebody else. Then Jesus summarized it and he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. He brings the same statement back again. What's he saying here? This whole thing started back over in chapter 19 with another story many of y'all may know. Uh, it was this guy, that they re he's referred to in the scriptures as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was a guy who grew up going to church every day, uh, did everything he could to keep the commandments. And so he comes to Jesus, who he hears is a religious teacher who talks a lot about heaven, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to enter eternal life? What's the premise of his question? What can I do to earn my way into heaven? What's the answer to that question, that you, those of you who know? Nothing. You can't earn it, right? So Jesus looks back at him and he says, well, let's go with the common vernacular of the day. How good is good enough? Have you kept all the commandments? Yep, every one of them. Wow. It's rare I meet somebody so perfect like that. So he says to him, all right, do this. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says he went away sad because he had great wealth. What's the purpose? What's the point of this? Does it mean that in order to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything and become a poor peasant in order to follow him? No, what he's saying is you need to give up all the things that you're trusting in for your own self-confidence and follow me. That's what you need to do. And for you, it's your background, your morality, and your wealth. I often say it's much easier to start a church in a poor area than in a rich area. You know why? To do evangelism in a poor area, 
Give me some ideas of what you could do to bring people in to tell them about the gospel. Free food, free clothes, services, right? That's why in Nicaragua, we do a feeding center there. Why? It's easy for them to attract a crowd because these kids have nothing to eat. And so you feed the kids and the parents want to know who it is that's feeding their kids. Very easy to do. How much harder is it to reach people who literally want for nothing? And they've got a lot of problems, but they can, let's face it, you can cover up a lot of your problems with money for a good while, can't you? Right? And so how, do, how, does, how long does it take that person to realize their great need? How do you penetrate that heart? And Jesus looks at him and he says, the very thing that's keeping you from having a relationship with God, take that away. Strip yourself of that and come before me in a relationship. And the guy goes away sad because he won't do it. And so then the text says, truly it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. It's really hard when you can, when you can medicate away or buy away all of your problems, right? It's really hard for that person to realize their need for God. So the disciples looked at him and said, if that guy can't get saved, who can be saved? And he says, what's impossible on your own is very easy and possible with God. In other words, it's impossible if you earn it, but it's very easy if you just ask for it. That's all. So they're looking at the situation. Then Peter says, well, we've given away everything. What's in it for us? He actually says that. Read it. Chapter 19. And so he says back to Peter, he says, you know, I'm not saying that giving up everything like you have is of no value. What I'm saying is that if you're trusting in all your stuff to have a relationship with me, find another path. But for those who've given up everything to follow me, yeah, you'll be rewarded for that. But when it comes to grace, the first shall be last and the last will be first. In other words, the people who have a relationship with me and, and go to heaven aren't the people who've earned their way in, the people you would think would be at the front of the line. No, oftentimes it's the people who have nothing who realize how much they greatly need God. Some of the people with the greatest faith in this world are the people who have absolutely nothing. Yet the crazy weird thing is that somehow, I see this, you wouldn't, none of us admit it. We have too much of a bias. We live in too much of our immersed, water-filled life. We see somebody who's poor in a third-world country, and we automatically assume we have a better relationship with God than that person. I know you don't actually think that. But you'll look at somebody who has nothing, and they're worshiping Jesus, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I could really help them. Sometimes they don't need your help. They've already got a relationship with God. They already have everything they need. Now, are there other people there who do need help? Yes. But sometimes we'll just assume everybody there, because they're poor, they need our help. Do you realize there are some people who have a better relationship with God than you do? Do you also realize there are people there who have a far better relationship with God than many people in our own community who've trusted in their wealth ahead of everything else? And so God says, the first will be last and last will be first. The very people in your community you think you have the best relationship with God oftentimes don't. Some of those people will just barely squeak into heaven because they've trusted all their own stuff all their life trying to buy off God everywhere along the way. And you'll have somebody else who's absolutely dirt poor broke but they just love God with all their heart. I wish I could call out names. I won't. But there are some people, and I'll go to my, my church in Florida. I remember there was a guy in my church in Florida, and I told a friend of mine when I was leaving, I was like, dude, this guy's moving to your area. You need to get him at your church. Like, why? Because I was like, dude, this guy's an evangelist. He's got a heart for God. You won't find anybody with a greater faith or a bigger heart. This guy would bring in lost people by the busload. Literally, he would bust people up and bring them to church. But he was a little quirky. All right? It's kind of odd, you know, a little shifty, you know? 
And my friend met him, and he looked at me and goes, and he was, and in his mind, he had this picture of this, you know, giant of the faith, right? And he meets the guy, and he goes, it was over like a, that guy? And he told me, he says, he won't fit in at my church. That church is almost dead now, by the way. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And God's kingdom, it isn't always what you would think. God doesn't judge by the outward appearance. He judges by the heart. That's why so often the people you think are getting in aren't. And so oftentimes you'll sit there and think to yourself, God could never use me. And God's looking at you like, no, you're exactly who I want to be used. Exactly who I want to be used. I hope what you take away from this message is a couple things. Number one, God's not fair and he's not trying to be. That isn't the nature of grace. You may look at God and say, God, I got the shaft. And here's the thing. If this life is all there is, I will join with you in your rebellion and claiming God's not fair and he, he, he owes us something. If this life is all there is. Because you may look at your life and say, the health problems I have, the relational problems I have, the issues that I have, life's not fair. And if this life is all there is, you're darn right there is, it is. And you're darn right God, God, God owes us an explanation. However, if regardless of our circumstances and experience for whatever 70, 80, 90 years we have here is all leading up to an eternity with our Heavenly Father that all of us can enter into by the same path, grace, does it really matter what our experiences are here for these 70 years? Does it? If this life truly is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Him, no matter what experience you go through, you have the opportunity to have a loving relationship with Him that you get to enjoy for all eternity. But it's not fair that the thief on the cross enters into eternity and this rich guy who's tried to do everything right doesn't. Yeah, it is. It's all grace. The offer of grace was given to him too. Everybody's given the offer of grace. Everybody has the same opportunity for all eternity. The question is, what will you do with it? We join as we close our time in prayer. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that you gave us these stories, these parables to help us understand these hard truths. Just to begin with, Lord, help us understand that life isn't fair and we don't honestly want it to be because we desperately need your grace. And if each and every one of us got what we deserved, we'd be being punished for our own sins. But you and your grace have offered to give us the reward of a faithful son because your faithful son, Jesus Christ, took on our sins. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for the unfairness of your generosity. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.